piano player, dear. I want you to know that. Thank you very much. I also want you to know I used to play like that before I had my fingers amputated. They, I know you'll think I got fingers, but uh, they, uh, they had to show on fingers of a cadaver. Anyway, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's go to Proverbs chapter 13, uh, verse 13. And uh, the book of Proverbs is a great book to, uh, to learn from. It absolutely is. You know, it's got two powerful aspects to it. Proverbs, the book of God's instructions to a wise man. And then Proverbs, the book of destruction for a foolish man. One book, it has instruction. The other, it has destruction. And I want to read Proverbs chapter 13, verse 13, and here's what it says. Whoso despises the word shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. Let's pray. Father, we'll thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We ask you now, Father, to take the Word of God today and open up our hearts and give us, Father, the things that uh, we really need to see and understand. Uh, We love you so much. Thank you for those that are here today. And pray your Word go forth and uh, change our hearts and change our minds and all that we do. We thank you for uh, the people that got saved last week, even now while we were away and doing God's work in New York. We thank you for the men that, and the women that held the line here and did the job. And uh, Lord, your blessings continue. And we just thank you for that. Ask your time on blessings on it today. And we're careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for our sake we ask it. Amen. Now the verse says, Whoso despises the word shall be destroyed. But he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. You know, every verse in the Bible has a very important impact uh, in a lot of different ways. But every once in a while, you'll find a verse that just has so much to it and has such a far-reaching effect that it's, uh, in some cases, quite hard to comprehend at all. And that is certainly uh, one of the verses today uh, we find here. And this is one of the most profound verses in all of the Bible that shows us the importance of understanding what the Bible really is to us. You know, Christianity, and I appreciated what Danny said this morning about the singing, because you know what? Everything in our Christian lives, when it just goes on and on and on and on, it falls into that rut of, of, of routine, and you lose the significance of it, and you lose the importance of it. Most people, you know, uh, when they go to churches, they never look at the song service as really preparing their hearts and their chance to give back to God all that He's done for them. They don't see it. And the reason why they don't is because things in our Christian life become routine. And that's why there always has to be a challenge. That's why The Bible has preachers that preach the Word of God, that challenge our hearts and give us what we need to have to keep the routine, you know, in our lives at a minimum. And it's hard to believe that that even applies to the Bible. We come to the place in our Christian lives where we are around the Bible so much, we hear so much about the Bible, that it's easy to get into a routine when it just comes to how you view the Word of God. And it's verses like this that I think is some of the most impacting 
verses that you're ever going to find or verse that you're ever going to find in the Word of God. And it shows us, as I said, the importance of understanding what the Bible is to us as God's infallible Word. And more important, I think this verse, when you really investigate it, as we're going to do today, and there'll be few stones left unturned by the time that we're done today, I think even more important, you see what that book really means to God. And, you know, we think about the Bible and what it means to us. Most times we don't really think about what the Bible means to God. We think that when God wrote it, he just gave it to us, and then that's the farthest it went. And, of course, that's not the case. Now, when you start to look at this from the very placement of the verse, and you know my position on the Bible, I believe that the Bible is the absolute infallible word of God. I believe that every verse in it was put there by God the way he wanted it to be there. I believe the order of the chapters are absolutely vital, put there by God. I believe the order of the books of the Bible. People talk about, uh, you know, all millennialism or post-millennialism or pre-millennialism. If I didn't know all the inside stuff of in the Bible, to know that premillennial return of Christ was right, I could just simply go to the order of the books of the Bible from Second Chronicles to Proverbs, see the premillennial return of Christ. You know why? God put the order of the books in the Bible. He put the order of the verses in the Bible. So when I look at this and I see that it's in chapter 13, verse 13, you might know that this is not going to be a good verse for some people. You know, I don't know if you know it or not, but number 13 in the Bible is the number of Satan. Most people don't have a much understanding of Bible numerology today. It's been downplayed by preachers and, and people who want to take your interest out of the Word of God and have your interest focused on them. But there are certain numbers in the Bible, and I understand that you can, you can prove anything with numbers, and you have to be careful with that. But let's face it, there are certain numbers that are absolutely undeniable when it comes to what they represent in the Bible. It's no accident because the world always gets its fundamental truth from the Bible but doesn't really know why. It's no accident that from time and eternity, from the time you grew up, 13 was an unlucky number. There's no accident that 7 has always been considered a lucky number. And you know, and when it comes to your Bible, the first, one of the first types of the Antichrist in your Bible is a guy by the name of Nimrod. Now, when you study his genealogy or his lineage, yes, he's the 13th man from Adam. We know about Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was the uh, man who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you do a little more investigative study, you'll find out that he is the Antichrist because there's only two men in the Bible that are called the son of perdition. One is the Antichrist in Revelation, and the other one is Judas. Judas is a chariot. Thirteen letters in his name. Check out sometime John chapter 13. It's where Jesus talks about the fact that he's going to be betrayed by Jesus, Judas. Check out sometime Deuteronomy 13, which talks about witchcraft, sorcery, people going to seances and trying to contact their dead relatives or somebody, and it shows you how that, uh, that's witchcraft and has nothing to do with God. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, 
We know from Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 14 that when the devil left heaven and was kicked out of heaven, the Bible says that uh, in Revelation chapter 12, he took one-third of the angels with him. That would be a 13. Revelation chapter 18, verse 5, the title of the great whore of Babylon, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Thirteen words. You count up the letters, there's 65. That's five times 13. Nimrod means the son of rebellion. So in 1776, nobody has to tell me where America is headed. Nobody has to point out for me and, and make it clear. The Bible makes it very clear. Nimrod means son of rebellion. So in 1776, when America rebelled against England, she did it with 13 colonies, a flag with 13 stars and 13 stripes, and a motto with a serpent, Genesis chapter 3, that said, don't tread on me, 13 letters. Now the verse says, Whoso despises the word of God shall be destroyed, but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. And what's going to follow in our study today will be an incredible insight, inside view of what's happening today in Christianity. I think that this verse is one of the most profound verses when it's fully developed and put into its proper context throughout the scripture that you're ever going to get into. And now, this verse is about two kinds of people, obviously. One despises the Word of God and gets destroyed. The other one fears the commandment of God and gets his reward. And let me say, the central key aspect of God will always be, and boy, this is really lost today. The central key aspect of God will always be His Word. I don't know how a person could miss that. And when it comes to the Word of God, you have to either take it God's way, never your way. I don't know why people can't see that. Just like God. You can't love God and have God in your life on your own terms. Do you understand that? If you're going to have any real biblical relationship with God, it cannot be on your terms the way you want it. And just like the Bible, you have to learn the Bible and love the Bible on God's terms. You know, I meet people all the time that say they love God. And I'm not sitting here denying the fact that maybe they don't. But what I am going to tell you is many of them love God on their own terms. And that's different than loving God on the Bible terms. And there's many people who talk about, oh, they love the Bible. But it's different than loving the Bible on your terms the way you want it than loving that book on God's terms the way he demands it has to be loved. Now, as we look at the first part of this verse about despising the Word of God, I want to show you two aspects to it. The first aspect, obviously, will be an unsaved man. An unsaved man, he doesn't have any light from God in his life. He only gets enough light to see that he needs salvation, and many times he rejects that. And his destruction will come because of his life. All through his life, he continually violates the principles of God, 
and in time it will stack up against him and destroy him. We see it in people who are caught up in alcoholism. They go through their whole life and become an alcoholic, can never break free from it, and in time, because of a continuance of violating the principles of the clear word of God, because you have no light, because you refuse the light, it destroys you. You see it with, alcohol, uh, with drug addiction. You see it in the world in general, in all the strongholds that those things bring into our life. And it all comes down because a man, an unsaved man, has a complete rejection of the Word of God as the Word of God and what it can do for him in his life, God's way, and not his. Now, as tragic as that is, it's totally understandable, to me anyhow, for an unsaved man or woman who despises the Word of God. And and let me be clear about something lest I, you know, you get confused on this issue because when I'm done today, I want you to completely understand the full impact of this verse. I'm not, when I talk about despising the Word of God, I'm not talking about a man or a woman who rages a lifelong campaign against the Bible. I'm not talking like somebody like Madeline Murray O'Hare. Most of you don't even remember who she was. She was the single most important atheist in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. She single-handedly waged a campaign against the Bible anywhere and her whole life she despised the Word of God, she made fun of the Word of God, she ridiculed the Word of God, and she did everything in her power to make everybody believe that the Word of God and believing in God and the very concept of God was one of the foolish things that you could ever do in your life. She was murdered, by the way, in 1995. Her, her atheist son and their atheist granddaughter were kidnapped and abducted, taken to a secluded place and held, and then they made them, force them to make phone calls to get money out of the bank at a drop spot that was picked up, and of course, they never found them again until later on when they found them all buried. She had been severely tortured. They had cut her toes off one at a time tortured her in the most unbelievable way, killed her, and then dismembered her and buried her. You know, sometimes God will just put a person like that in a situation to think about what you've done against his word all your life. Now, you think for a moment that she didn't go through that agony, whether she recanted or whether whatever, I have no clue today, but I am sure of this. I am sure that while she was going through that tremendous ordeal, the Holy Spirit of God was tapping her on the shoulder and just asking her if she thinks now that she's as big as she thought she was when she was making fun of God. Now, I'm not talking about the American Atheist Society. No, we think that that's what we have to do to qualify as a person who despises the Word of God. I'm here to tell you this morning, and you better listen very carefully, what I'm about to say has nothing to do with that. Not at all. 
In God's mind, when you simply reject the Word of God in your life as the final authority, you have despised it as far as God's concerned. He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. There is no middle ground with God. We love that middle ground. We love to pretend we're not really right with God, but we're not really out of fellowship with God. We like to play that middle ground, and yet the truth of the matter is that middle ground does not exist when it comes to your having a relationship with God. If you don't recognize the Bible as it is for what it is, and you don't take it into your life and believe it, then as far as God's concerned, you've despised it and you've rejected it. So I get it as it applies to an unsaved man. I I really do. But it's really hard to imagine in our second aspect how that applies to a saved man or a woman. And this is where we begin to get into some problems. Philosophical problems. Fickle problems. People who think with their head instead of their heart. And the Word of God. It's hard to imagine how that a saved man or a woman that is truly born again. Maybe he's a pastor. Maybe he's a Sunday school teacher. Maybe he's a deacon. I've seen all of those categories. Maybe he's a Christian that's in a church at, and they teach salvation. How could they ever, ever fall into a category of despising the Word of God. Yet over the years, I've seen it. And today, it's all around in Christianity. And the concept is so foreign to me. How that a guy can say, I love God, but he says, I reject the true Word of God. Now that's a oxymoron. Because when you really understand the Bible from a Bible position, God and the Bible are the same. You don't have God over here and a Bible over here that is separate from God. The Bible says that the Word was made manifest and dwelt among us. It says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the the Word was with God and the Word was God. It blows my mind. It shows you where people are at in their understanding today. How a guy, a pastor, can say, I love God, but at the same time, when it comes down to this book, he'll reject it and think that the two don't matter. Well, Proverbs 13, 13 tells me that they do matter. Yet in there are churches today, I'd say probably 99% of them, that if you walk into their services, they're singing songs this morning, they have prayer lists and praying this morning, their sermons on salvation, their sermons on God, all the basic things. Ah, but here's the difference. And maybe, maybe you've never done this and maybe you're not into this enough to, to really understand it, but just sit down and talk to them about the real Word of God. Just sit down and talk to them about the fact that God wrote an absolute standard that is the absolute 
perfect Word of God against all the other translations in the world that is absolutely perfect, absolutely inspired of God without any proven error. Try it sometime. And brother, when you do, the fangs of rejection will come out like a werewolf on a full moon night. And you'll see that in the midst of praising God, loving God, having church, when it comes down to this book, they despise it. Not going to be an easy sermon this morning. That's okay. I'm not in an easy mindset this morning. I've seen it all my life. I've talked to them. I've read their books. I've read their, I've heard their sermons. I've read their newsletters. Maybe you don't get out much, but underneath that syrupy, plastic, phony smile will be a hatred for the true Word of God. When it comes, and you listen to me now, when it comes to God, you can't get to God by coming your way on your terms. You have to come His way or no way at all. And when it comes to His Word, which is Him, John 1, 1, you can't get it based on your idea and your way of thinking. There's only one God. Many fakes. The Jehovah Witnesses got a fake. The Roman Catholics got a fake. The Mormons got a fake. Charismatics got a fake. Seventh day got a fake. Hundreds of them. But there's only one true God. And he's the God of the Bible. And if you're going to find the true God, you got to get him on his term. You can't redefine and reinterpret and change. You can't add to something to get the God that you want to believe in. Lots of fakes. Only one God. And I'm going to tell you this. Only one word of God. And there's lots of fakes. The RSV, the ASV, the new NIV, the American Bible, <clears throat> New King James Bible, hundreds of them. And just like you can't come to God and find God on your terms, you can't come to this Bible and take what you like and leave what you don't like. But you will wind up despising it. Now, there's some things that I want you to see and understand today. The devil has pulled off one of the greatest tricks the world has ever seen. Getting people to think that salvation and souls was God's number one priority. That is the thought and the teaching and the mindset of churches today. Now, we talked about the guy that got saved after Bob preached and the lady got saved after Lauren preached and we win people to Christ and our whole ministry is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's what we do. But I'm not under any delusion that that's the number one heartbeat of God. The number one heartbeat of God, my dear friend, is truth. Without the truth... The rest of it doesn't matter. That the Jehovah Witnesses are right, the morons are right, the seven-day disadvantages are right, the charismaniacs are right, everybody's right. 
you're okay and I'm okay. Most people have no clue that in the Bible, it clearly shows you that there is a counterfeit for everything that God does. So, in your Bible, you have two Christs. Do you know that? Do you know that you have two Christs in your Bible? Somebody says, well, I believed in Christ. My next question is, which one? There's two. The Bible talks about over there in the book of Revelation. Chapter 11, verse 15, in Luke chapter 2, verse 26, it talks about the Lord's Christ. And it talks about, in Revelation 12, His Christ. You see, the word Christ is the word we have for the word anointed. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know there was a time when the devil was the anointed cherub. He's anointed. Christ is anointed. You got two Christs. That's why the Bible says it's no, that marvelous Satan transformed himself into an angel of light. He becomes a false Christ because he is Christ. Come on. We have Christ, and then we have the, the, the man of sin who was called the what? The Antichrist. There's two. Genesis chapter 3.15, you don't go three chapters in Genesis before you find out that the devil's got a seed and Christ has a seed. You find there's two seeds, there's two lines, there's two Christ. Why are people so gullible today? 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible By the Word of God. Then there's a corruptible Bible and there's an incorruptible Bible. There's a corruptible Christ. There's an incorruptible Christ. The the corruptible Christ will have a corruptible church. He'll have a corruptible Bible. He'll have a corruptible spirit. He'll have everything that is against the true Christ. Your job and my job is simply this. Figure out which one is which. I don't know why that's so hard. And yet if you sat down with the average pastor of the average church, hey, if you don't go to this church, just try it this week sometime. you got two Christs in the Bible. You've got two spirits in the Bible. You've got two lines of churches in the Bible. You've got two lines of Bibles in the Bible. The right book, you get the right rewards. Proverbs 13, 13. Despise that book, you get destroyed. Now, that's one of the hardest concepts to wrap your head around right there. It really is. And I totally understand and get it. Many of God's people that find themselves in this mess are good people, and they just can't get how that a preacher, saved man or woman, deacon, Sunday school teacher, can talk about God, love God, try to win people to Christ, but when it comes down to that book, despise it. And if you don't understand that, you don't get out much. And there's a reason for this. And I hear it all the time. 
I hear people all the time say, well, I just can't get into that, Bob, because these are really good people. They love God. They serve them all their lives. Some of them are in missions. They're in ministry. They're doing all the right things. Now, here's what I teach. Just let me get this out of the way. Based on Proverbs 13, 13. And then I'm going to take you where I'm going. And if you disagree with me now, you can come and apologize after I finish the sermon. I'm old school. I believe that God only wrote one Bible. And I believe that every other Bible out there other than a King James 1611 authorized version, here it comes, is the devil's Bible. Now just hang with me. You know, to me, it's never been about all the issues that people make it. They want to talk about this and this manuscript and that and all that. I get it. I, I don't even go there. I just simply know where one Bible came from and where the other Bibles come from. One of them is God's church. The other one's the devil's church. And for me, it's real simple. Either you have God's Bible or you have the devil's Bible. And if that's too much for you, anybody got any title at all? Just raise your hand. Try to help you with a headache I'm about to give you. Now, here's what I teach, and I believe this with all of my heart. Based on Proverbs 13, 13. No book, absolutely no rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. For anything you do. Say, how can you say that? Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, I'm not done yet. I got some questions for you. And I understand that some people just can't get there. I totally get it. But God's people are so fickle when they come to this Bible. Now let me ask you a question. Is being a good person and doing good things, is it really enough to get you to heaven? Of course it's not. Nobody here in their right mind would even think that. It takes the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, the uncorruptible seed, the Word of God. But let me ask you another question. But after salvation, will just doing things and being a good guy automatically get you reward to the judgment seat of Christ? No, it won't. Not at all. In both cases, it only works if your attitude about God's Word is His attitude on right track. I'm not a very complicated person. I, I can't be with my, my lifestyle. I just, I just have to break things down. I'm not very intelligent. I'm not very smart. I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of understanding of things in life. And I, 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 you guys all have iPhones. I have a flip phone. If I have an iPhone, I, I'd never figure it out. And it's always that thing where, you know, uh, it's just like I said the other day. Every time you get one and it works for a while, then you've got to get another upgrade on it. And then it frustrates you. Doesn't work. Something happens on it. I never figure them out. Uh, texting. I hate texting. Do never text me unless it's less than one word. People text me all the time. Bob, I'm studying here in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 26, and I have a question. Like, I'm going to take now, it would take me the next three days to answer you. I see some of you with your thumbs. Speed of light, man. I'm there. 
Ah, crap. Why is it doing that? I don't do it. If you got a question, call me. I can do in 20 seconds on the phone what it take me six days to do on text. Texting's of the devil. If he wants to destroy your soul in hell, he'll send you a text. <laughs> For me, it's always been real simple. And let's get down to it, shall we? Let's separate the men from the boys today, shall we? Now, can you get to heaven by following the devil? Of course not. Can you get God's blessing in your life by ministering and using the devil's Bible? Simple question. I mean, a simple question. Can you get to heaven by following the devil? No. Next question. Will you get rewards of the judgment seat of Christ? Will God bless you through your ministry, through the devil's Bible? It's just that simple. Now, maybe you don't understand that what the devil's Bible concept is. I, I don't know what to tell you. You've been hanging out with the wrong crowd too long. But I mean, remember, God has his Bible out of Antioch, and the devil has his out of Rome. And in either case, it doesn't matter what a, what a really good person you are, saved or lost. What matters is the truth that you have. God will bless you and reward you. Read the verse on the truth. And when you don't have the truth, as far as God's concerned, you despise the truth. Hey, you can be the greatest Christian in the world and love God or claim to love God all of your life. Will that make God bless you through the devil's Bible? And I'm just going to ask you another question. If it isn't the devil's Bible, it isn't God's, who is it? Because God only wrote one. And if you don't understand that concept by now, as I said earlier, you've been hanging out with the wrong crowd too much. And we get this idea that, oh, the devil, boy, I can't follow him going to church. But I'll follow him by ministering through his Bible. Now, if you don't have a problem with that, you better look a little deeper. You don't get the God your way. You get there his way. You don't get the rewards out of the Bible your way either. Got to get it God's way. Now, these are the cold, hard facts. God either has one Bible that's absolute truth and the rest of them are counterfeit or God has written 400 versions of his word None of them matching, changed in 60,000 places from one to the other. God is not the author of confusion, except when it comes to Bible translations. Back in the dark ages, the Roman Catholic Church would kill anybody, anytime, anywhere, who had a King James 6 to 11 authorized version. And refused to recant this Bible, leave their Bible-believing church, and join the Roman Catholic system. The devil's church with the devil's Bible. Today, 20, 21st century, devil's much more sophisticated in his attack. Today, he's willing to leave you stay in your Baptist church or your Bible church or whatever church you're in. 
He's willing to let you stay in that church as long as you now use his Bible. And it's just that simple. And the question is, will God bless a man's ministry through the devil's Bible? That's the only question. That's the only question that you've got to answer. Will he? Will he? I mean, maybe I read it wrong. He divided, God divided the light from the darkness in John chapter 1, verse 4, and he separated them. Now, you're trying to tell me that God and the devil have gotten back together on the same bow. You're sure you're not a Mormon? They believe that someday in the future, God and the devil are going to patch it all up and be buddies? I mean, God divided in Genesis 1-4, light from the darkness. You have two lines coming down through history. One light, one darkness. One church in light, one church in darkness. One Bible in light, one Bible in darkness. And now you're telling me that God and the devil got together and put out a Bible together? You're not a Mormon, you're a moron. And I'll tell you this. You talk about the judgment seat of Christ. Imagine a true born-again Christian defending the position that the devil's Bible, the NIV, the ASV, the RSV, New King James Bible, is better than the book that God wrote and still getting rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. You know what that Bible says? You despise the word, you're going to get destroyed. You fear the commandments, you get your reward. That idea never came from God. That idea came from scholarship. It came from Greek and Hebrew professors. It came from, they didn't come from the true biblical line. I've met over the years hundreds of preachers and Christians and, and, and good godly men who claim to love God, who absolutely hated and despised the idea that the King James Bible was God's perfect inspired word. They put out websites, newsletters, write all kinds of books, Bible colleges, classes. They tear down the King James Bible. Greek and Hebrew professors and pastors stand in the pulpit every Sunday morning and open up a scripture and start to preach and then right in the middle they say, now in the Greek that word doesn't mean what it says here. In the Greek, that word means this. Translation, God didn't know what he was saying when he wrote that Bible, but I'll help him out. You go to Peter S. Ruckman on the internet. He's got his issues. I understand it. I get it. But if you went through what he threw in life, depending the Bible, you'd look like a three-headed monster too. You go on the internet, a hundred pages probably 200 by now. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. He's this. He's that. He's cooth. He's that. All of these things. Let me translate that for you. I don't hate Ruckman. I just hate the Bible that he puts out. Guy said one time, you know what? You guys who believe the King James Bible is the absolute word of God, that issue... That issue is dividing more churches and Christianity than ever anything other issue. Well, you, you, you stupid fool. I think that's a good thing to divide for God's people, the devil's Bible, from God's Bible. If I get up here and preach on homosexuality or drug abuse or alcoholism or the sins of the world, you'd love me. But start preaching about God's Bible versus the devil's Bible when you despise God's Bible and you love the devil's Bible. See where the problem comes in? 
It's so simple. I don't say man takes the light of God as far as he can, and then salvation comes in. Nah, I don't want it. He rejects it. A saved man, he'll take the light of God, he'll get saved, but as he grows and somebody starts to show him that this Bible's got all the mistakes in it, and this Bible this, and this Bible that, and a better reading should be, he rejects the light he gets, goes his way. So simple. And he winds up despising the very word of God. And he winds up starting to defend the devil's Bible. Now, there's two great examples of this in your Bible. Two men who represent exactly what Proverbs 13, 13 says. One loves the Word of God. One despises the Word of God. One cherishes it as his greatest possession. The other one uses it whenever he wants to and changes his at will to do whatever he wants to do. And both of them are types of New Testament Christians. And in your Bible, if you haven't guessed it already, it will be David and Saul. David and Saul. Now, in the Old Testament, God's form of government, we know this, was a theocracy. A king on the throne of Israel to represent God. The prophets, they would come to the king with the word of God, and that's why when you get into your Old Testament, every time a prophet says something to somebody that God told him to say, he always prefaces it by saying, thus saith the Lord. You find a prophet that says something that before he says it doesn't preface it with thus saith the Lord. He's a lying prophet. See, that prophet knew that what he had to say had to come right from God. Unaltered. He didn't have a right to change it. And I understand as a pastor that what I have here came right from God. And I don't have a right to alter it or change it. So when I come up here anytime, when I come up here today... Don't get mad at me. Don't get upset with me. Look at me as an Old Testament prophet. I'm just simply saying, thus saith the Lord. You show me one thing that I'm preaching today that's not in that Bible and correct, I'll publicly make the apology for it. You won't find it because all I'm doing is giving you what the Bible says. And you know the story of Saul and David. The people want a king. God wants to give them a king that is like him. But oh no, they don't want, they don't want a king after God's own heart. They want to be like all the other nations. Boy, have I seen this in pulpit committees when they're trying to find a pastor. In the 45 years that I've been connected with people that were looking for pastors, and they have their little meeting when the deacons come in and they bring a candidate in, not one time. You know what they ask him? Where'd you go to school? Well, how many degrees do you have? How successful were you in your last church? Not one time have they ever asked, what do you believe about the Bible? How many souls you won to Christ? None of those things matter to them. You know why? Because they don't want the man after God's own heart. They want a pastor like all the other nations, churches. And they wind up getting Saul. It's so simple. And you know, they said, we want a king like all the other nations, and they forgot that God told them, you know what, guys, you're not like to be all the other nations. So they get Saul, Sir Samuel 8 and 9. Now, I want to tell you something, and I want to give you two warnings in your Bible. 
And if you don't have these marked in your Bible and have them down, and maybe after today, up to today, you've been oblivious to them. But I won't tell you the two of the most somber warnings anywhere in the Bible. Revelation 3 verse 11 says, you better take care that no man takes your crown. And Revelation 16, 15 says, you better be careful that you keep your garments. And both of those references are to the judgment seat of Christ. There's somebody out there who can take your crowns from you and make you lose your garments. Saul represents in every way the 2021st century pastor, Christian, deacon, who abhors and despises the true word of God, yet claims to love God. He's so spiritual, he's just not biblical or scriptural. He's a professional Christian. I want to show you a contrast between two men, Saul and David, based on Proverbs 13, 13. For they represent exactly what I'm talking about and what you see all around you today. First thing we're going to do is look at Saul. And I want to show you very quickly eight ministry characteristics of Saul and how they fit right into the pastor Saul's of today and and contrast them with David. First of all, chapter 13, verse 19 of 1 Samuel. They don't have to turn to it, just listen. First thing he does is he takes the Bible from the people. Bible says in 13.9, there was no smiths found in Israel. What he does is he makes an allegiance with the Philistines, who are God's enemies. And he makes an allegiance and he makes everybody in Israel give up their sword. And he says, turn your sword in and we're going to look to the Philistines to make our weapons. Now, it doesn't take much of a brain to figure out that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the sword is the word of God. And the first thing that he did is he took the word of God right out of the people's hands. And he lined them up with a Philistine concept of the word of God. A worldly concept that was God's enemy who despised God, despised his word. And now the people of God are getting their truth from the Philistines. Second thing he did, 13.3. He takes all the credit for what the people do, but he himself will do nothing. Jonathan defeats the Philistines in a great battle. Saul gets a trumpet, blows the trumpet, and proclaims, I saw have submitted the garrison of if he wasn't even there. He wasn't even around. These guys will never get their hands dirty. They'll send you out, but they'll never lead you out. Rule number two of pastoring, we'll get to rule number one in a minute. Rule number two of pastoring, don't send your people into battle. You lead your people into battle. Down at Fort Benning, Georgia, they got an officer school that, during World War II, and they trained officers uh, to be uh, uh, officers over enlisted men. The motto of their school was follow me. Number three, 1424-1439. The people are getting ready to go out and fight a battle. But Saul, the spiritual giant that he is, he puts them under an oath. And he says, you cannot eat anything for a day before you go fight this battle. So the people can't fight. They're weakened. They get defeated. 
They go out to battle and he puts them under a stupid oath. Totally absurd. Nothing in the Bible about it. Nothing from God about it. It's Saul's own mindset. Oh, this is, this is what God wants me to do. And they got defeated. This is what these guys do. All they do is weaken their people. They don't build them up in the things of God. This is why, honestly, before God this morning, about 85% of you, I'd put you up against any pastor, any deacon, any Sunday school teacher, any Christian in this city. Probably 99.999 of the Christians. Without any fear that you would bury them when it came to the Bible. You know why? You have been equipped. You've gotten the truth. My job is to build you up, make you strong, develop your endurance, give you an appetite for the sting of battle. We were up to New York, Mike, we were out there walking behind you guys after about the second or third day, Mike said, boy, your people are something. Most groups that come up here, they wear out on the first day. Your guys just keep, keep, keep on going. I didn't say anything to him, but I thought to myself, you don't know the half of it, pal. The fourth thing, 1424, 1433. He put them under an oath. He put them in a situation that they could not win in, weakened them up against a full-fledged army that was strong, had all of their might. And then when they fail in battle and they can't win, he blames the failure on them. Now this is what they all do. When they fail to lead, when they fail to train you, when they fail to equip you, and they put you into a no-win scenario, and when you fail, then they blame it on you. Rule number one of ministry, and you've heard me say it many, many times, so you probably can quote it for me, everything rises and falls on leadership. The failure of a church, any church, the failure of a church will be because of the failure of the pastor. It'll never be the people's fault. Never be under any circumstances. Don't listen to him whine about it. And Well, the people just don't want to get involved. The people won't give. The people won't do that. No, the people have plenty of money. The people are coming on Sunday. The problem is the failure is leadership to develop what God has given you. So when you fail, it can't be you, Saul. It has to be the people. A pastor has total command of his church just like a father has of his family. And a church will be exactly, I'm telling you, you put this away somewhere and just watch it. A church will be exactly what the pastor is. Just like your family will mirror what your spirituality is. This church ever fails, if that church ever goes up in smoke, it will not be one person I'll blame. You know why? It comes right back to me. If I let it happen... If you brought up sedition and tried to do something and I didn't kill you, it's my fault, not yours. But I will kill you. 
The failure of a church will always go back to the failure of a pastor of the church. He'll whine about it. He'll complain about it. You'll either have a pastor who is a wimpy person and he'll produce a wimpy church, or you'll have a pastor who has some steel in his backbone and he'll produce Christians with steel in theirs. They both go the way of your leadership, or in some cases, a lack of it. The fifth thing, 1415. He leaves his own son on the battlefield to die. Absolutely no loyalty to his son. Now, I'll put this in an inspirational application for us to be sons in the Lord, inspirationally. The souls that pastor today only care about themselves. Everybody else is expendable. When the truth is, he should be the one that's expendable. The people God gives him are not. The motto of every pastor, the motto of every church, to the best of his ability, should be, no one left behind. We pick up our wounded. We help our fallen. Listen, I've been in some rough situations 35, last 30 some years on the mission field, dealing with situations where sometimes I didn't know if we were going to get out or not. I used to get intelligent reports from a guy at Fort Benning when I would go someplace from the old days that I kept contact with, and he was an S3 or S4, and he would get intel. God ever knows they ever found out he'd be in Leavenworth. But he would, I would say, hey, I'd, I'd talk, talk to him on the phone in code, and I'd say, hey, I'm going here, going there. He would supply me all the intel that he could give me of what was coming. We went to the Philippines one time, and he, he said, you better not go. He said, because there's an there's a insurrection going to take place over there, as far as we know, and it's going to fall right into the time that you're going to be just about getting ready to come back. Well, we were committed, and we went. You know what? We got out, but two days later, the whole thing erupted. I've been in some tough situations. I've been in El Salvador before when the war was going on down there with people that are ministering to people that I had four or five kids standing on the street corner and they were waiting for the church bus to come by and pick them up across from a hospital and there were guards everywhere, armed guards with machine guns and G3s and everything else out there and some old guy come up and he was throwing rocks at the guard and saying something in Spanish, they ignored him and he kept throwing rocks and saying stuff and getting louder and louder. After a while, they got annoyed and one of them unslung his weapon and took the safety off and shot the guy right in front of everybody. Don't you know that'll get you on the bus? But I want to tell you something. If we ever get the chance, by the grace of God, I don't know that we will, but if we'd ever be in some foreign country and we got into a bad situation and and, and had to get out, and for some reason you couldn't, some reason you were hurt, you couldn't get moved, you couldn't whatever, and we had to get out, we had to get everybody out because it wasn't going to look good, and you couldn't be moved, and you couldn't get out, and you had to stay there, I want to tell you something. I'd pick the smallest, strongest leader I got to get everybody out, and I'd stay there with you. And you know what? We either get out together or we die together, but no one's left behind. And either way, I'd never leave you. I won't leave you on this battlefield and I won't leave you on some other battlefield. That's what leadership is. The sixth thing, his philosophy of ministry is that the end always justifies the means. Whatever works. He doesn't take the word of God seriously. He changes whatever God says. Over there in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, 
It says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel and how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go, this is God telling Saul, now go and smite Amalek, utterly destroy all that he have and spare not of them not, but slay both man and woman and infant and suckling and ox and sheep and camel and ass. And he took Agog, the king of the Amaleks, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refused, they, they destroyed utterly. That's not what God told him to do. This is a 20th century pastor on Sunday morning with a clear mandate from the Bible. And he says, you know what? I know it says kill everything, but in the Greek, it doesn't mean that. Pastor Saul. Seventh thing. His mighty men of valor, 2 Samuel 14, 52. He has to force them. The word is conscript. He has to conscript them to be his mighty men of valor. Make him follow them. Nobody stands in line to be his warriors. Compare with David in 2 Samuel 23. Wow. Natural biblical leadership will build men who follow not the man, but they'll follow the book they see in the man. Some people just never see that. And the last thing, 13.8. He offers the evening sacrifice when he's not a priest. And under the law, can't do that. 1 Samuel 15, 22 uh, says, or I mean, 1 Samuel 13, verse 9 to 12 says, and he tarried seven days according to the set time that Samuel had appointed. Here's what happened. Samuel says, I'm coming, he's a priest, to make the sacrifice. I'll be there within seven days. Six days goes by, seventh day comes, he hasn't showed up yet. It's getting close to six o'clock. Something has to happen. It has to be done. So Saul, Pastor Saul, who despises the word of God, knows he's not a priest, knows he can't do that, reinterprets God's word and does it anyhow. Just as he's doing it, Samuel shows up and he says, what in the blankety blank did you just do? Christian cussing. It's okay in the Old Testament. (laughs) What did you do? And you know what Saul says? Well, you didn't come. It was getting late. You got to read it down here, a little couple of verses. You know what he says? I forced myself. No, you despise the word of God, you hate the word of God, and you did your own thing. Now let's look at David very quickly. His whole life is filled with the love of the word of God. He's called the man after God's own heart. He's been called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He alone writes 73 of the Psalms by name. Now, 49 of the Psalms are anonymous, and he probably wrote many of them. I'm sure he wrote Psalms 119, verses 1 through 176, the longest chapter in the Bible. And everything, every verse in that chapter talks about another aspect of loving the Word of God, and it shows what our attitude should be toward that book. David's the only man in the Bible who holds all three offices. He is a priest, he is a king, and he's a prophet. And in that, he's a picture of you and me. For as a New Testament Christian, you and I hold all three offices. Right now, you're a priest because you got the infallible Word of God. You're a prophet. And someday, Romans 8, when Christ comes back, you're going to be a king. The great contrast of two men in the Old Testament. 
And yet we see the contrast of two types of men in the New Testament, New Testament Christianity. One loves the true Word of God and knows what he has. The other despises it and forsakes it, it all in his own interest. One has only one thing, the book. The other has huge buildings, Starbucks, McDonald's in their church, health clubs, praise groups, praise singers, auditorium for three or 4,000 people, but no Bible. And really think that God's hands on them. I'll tell you something. We all were in New York last week along the skyline. Remember seeing that big sign said Watchtower? It's all the skyline of New York. The Jehovah Witnesses World Headquarters. They own a whole city block in New York. And across the building stretched that huge sign that says Watchtower. Years and years ago when Mel first took me down to New York City, we were driving down at night. We were coming up and you could come around the corner and you could see the Watchtower sign. In his own gentle, persuasive, loving way, he spat at me. He says, look at that! And I said, yeah, Watchtower. And he looks over and he says, listen, son, the devil will give you all the blessings in the world if you just deny that Jesus Christ is God. And the devil will give churches today all the blessings in the world if you just deny this book is not God's word. And you're so stupid, you think it's really by the hand of God. That God will bless you through the devil's Bible. Boy, Colossians chapter 2, verses, chapter verses 1 and 2, we gave you a little outline a couple of Thursday nights ago how that the first chapter just talks about the Laodicean church and what he goes through and redefines who Christ is. Because you know what? We have lost who Christ really is today. And we replaced the Word of God with traditions, philosophy, the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, in the context of what we're talking about, I want you to see something here. Whoso despises the Word shall be destroyed but he that feareth the commandment shall be rewarded. I want to talk about the last part of that verse for just a moment. Following the book. Following the word of God will lead to your rewards, not the judgment seat of Christ. You must see that. God gave that to you in a King James 1611 authorized version. We make no apology for that. We know that that Bible comes out of Antioch, Assyria, where they're first called Christians in Acts chapter 11. We know that. Now watch this. Two lines of Bibles. Two lines of churches. Two lines of Christianity. One comes from Alexandria, Egypt, and Rome, which is the type of the world in the Bible. Rome, the greatest enemy of Christianity has ever seen. That's the devil's line. The true line comes out of Antioch of Syria, the hotbed of New Testament Christianity. Your King James Bible is off the manuscripts that come out of Antioch. Any new Bible that's out there today comes off the manuscripts out of the Roman Catholic Church. Our church today is off the true line out of Antioch. We hold to the Bible that God gave us as the only true Word of God. And today, there's two lines of Christianity. 
one for the true line and one for the fake counterfeit line. Follow me so far? Kind of with me on it? You've been around long enough. Can I have a little help here? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? All right, follow me a little bit farther. Saul and David. Watch it. Saul represents the modern 20th century pastor today who despises the book and all the Christians that go along with it. David represents the true line. And you do know that when Saul finally died, he died a spiritual suicide. And if you read the account, not only did he die, but everybody that followed what he taught died with him. You do well to follow David instead of Saul. Now watch this. David, he's from the kingly line of Judah. Genesis 49.10, 2 Samuel 23.23, says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. David is off the true biblical line. Saul, he wasn't from Judah. 1 Samuel 9.1, he's from Benjamin. That's the wrong line to be king. What line are you following today? Because there's always going to be two. You're going to be the true line from Judah that produced David or the false line from Benjamin that produced Saul. If you want to lose the book and get, get, I mean, if you want to to love the book and get its rewards, then you get into the right biblical line with the right Bible. If you want to lose your rewards and get into the place where you get destroyed because you're despising the line and you go with Rome and Alexandria, it's going to be Saul or David. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Proverbs 13, 13 is a great principle in the Word of God. In our study, two types of men. In particular, my goal was to show you two kinds of pastors because pastors lead people. Pastors produce people. A good pastor will produce good people, strong people, equipped people who know their Bible, who can stand up to any adversity. A Saul pastor will only be thinking of himself. Two great verses in the Bible describe these two men as pastors. And to describe the pastor that you see today, I'll make no further comments. You can put all the pastors that you know, wherever you're going, by your own self, into one or the other category. First one is David. Jeremiah 3, verse 15. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. The second pastor is Saul. Isaiah 65, 5. A pastor which says, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am higher than you. It's either going to be Saul or it's going to be David. Two lines of Christ, two lines of churches, two lines of Bibles, two lines of pastors, two lines of Christianity. And Proverbs 13, 13 is a great, great, verse of showing you the one's going to get you the rewards and the other one's 
what you're going to lose. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, I make no apologies for the book that you've given me. It served me, Father, for over 45 years. I've failed it many times. I've let it down many times. But it has never failed me. It has never let me down. And Lord, we look at this church with the men and the women, and I like to brag on them. And I like to talk about how I would put them up against anybody, and most of them I certainly would, with the young men and the young ladies that can preach here, like last week and Thursday, and the scores of others that can do it, and, and the kids tonight at the mission, and going out today on the street, and what they know about the Bible, and how that most of them could handle Thursday night Bible study for me if I needed them to, uh, they've been equipped. They've been equipped, and they know their Bible. And, Lord, I'm proud of them, and I, I brag about them. But, Lord, I'm not any, under any delusion. It's not because of me. It's only because of a book that you gave us. This is what the true Word of God produces. Men and women with steel in their backbones. Men and women with a love and a thirst for the knowledge of the Word of God and a passion to put it out who understand that their walk with God and their ministry will only be based on their internal strength of loving that book. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God. Thank you for a church and men and women who rally around it with me. But, Lord, it'll never be about just me. It'll never be about my ministry or my preaching. It all centers around the book that you gave us, and we will hold it dear, and we will hold it high. Till Jesus comes back. In Jesus' name we pray, and I ask it. Amen.